You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For October 14th, 2020, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. Solar power has certainly come a long way. Fifteen years ago, most people doubted that it would ever be able to compete with the cheapest power generation fuel, which was coal, and no one could imagine when it could compete without subsidies. It was a drop in the ocean of power supply, and most people didn't even understand how it worked. And it was a difficult business to really scale up to a commercial level. Indeed, many of the biggest manufacturers of solar panels 10 or 15 years ago no longer exist, having gone bankrupt at some point along the troubled history of what has been dubbed the solar coaster as subsidies and other incentives came and went, causing booms and busts for the industry. But solar technologies did grow up, and its deployment did scale up, in part due to effective national policies and incentives, as well as new business models that emerged along the way. And all the while, the industry kept chipping away at production costs, one little incremental gain at a time. A similar storyline could describe the history of wind power, although wind has had a much longer history. Now, solar and wind are the generation sources of choice in most of the world because they're cheaper, faster, and safer than the alternatives, and they don't emit carbon dioxide. And as I wrote back in 2014 in an article you can find linked into the show notes, the energy transition long ago passed a tipping point beyond which it became unstoppable. Meanwhile, the wind and solar industries have continued to march on, gobbling up more and more market share with every passing year. But in this episode, I want to roll the clock back and revisit the history of solar, because first of all, it's too easy to forget how difficult it was to get to this point, and second, because that history holds some important insights for energy transition going forward. Also, there are still some important questions hanging over its future, including whether we should be waiting for new innovations like perovskites, or whether it can keep getting cheaper when it's already the cheapest kind of electricity money can buy in many places, and whether continuing to get cheaper might, in itself, become a problem eventually. And who better to chew over all these issues with than Jenny Chase, the OG of the solar team at New Energy Finance, now known as Bloomberg New Energy Finance, or just BNEF. She's had a front row seat to watching the solar industry grow from a bit player to a major energy source, and amazingly, 15 years on, she is still leading the BNEF team today and is still one of the sharpest analysts in the world about the past, present, and future of solar. She's also been a valued resource for me throughout those 15 years, so it's about bloody time I had her on the show. And whatever you know or think you know about solar, I guarantee you'll hear a few surprises in her comments today. 
And before we move on, just a quick administrative note about a new feature we've launched. We know that some of our subscribers have hated logging into our site, especially if they don't remember their passwords, which might have prevented them from enjoying the full suite of content we provide only on our website, including our extensive show notes for each episode, our interview transcripts, and our recently launched feature, the transcripts of our news segments, which many listeners had requested and which are now available all the way back to episode 34. So today I'm pleased to announce that we've made it super easy for you to log in. Now you just need to enter your email address on our website, then click the Login with Email button, which will email you a link that you can use to log in. You'll never have to remember or reset your password again. Isn't that cool? And big ups to Energy Transition Show producer Justin Ritchie for coming up with that innovation. Then in the news segment of this episode, we'll look at further evidence that Southeast Asia is going to pursue renewables and not coal to power its growth going forward. We'll note the cancellation of another major nuclear plant project in the UK. We'll hail one of the largest coal fleet retirements in US history and the exit of one of the largest coal plant manufacturers. And we'll contemplate the implications of a global oil major projecting peak oil demand this decade. And now let's proceed to our interview with Jenny Chase of BNEF, recorded September 8th, 2020. So let's bring her into the conversation now. Welcome, Jenny, to the Energy Transition Show. Hello, Chris. It's great to be here. I've been following your work as a solar analyst for the better part of 15 years, starting back when the company was known as New Energy Finance, before it got acquired by Bloomberg and became Bloomberg New Energy Finance, and then rebranded as Bloomberg NEF or just BNEF. And I only just got around to reading your 2019 book titled Solar Power Finance Without the Jargon for this interview, which, by the way, I found to be a much more entertaining read than I expected. And it's about a lot more than just solar power finance. In fact, I think it makes a very good primer for understanding the solar industry and its part in the energy transition as a whole. So first of all, kudos on the book. And I think it's about damn time I had you on the show. Thank you. And I'm glad you enjoyed that it didn't exactly stick to solar power finance. No, I mean, you actually had some interesting little chapters in there on like advice for women going into the energy sector and basic stuff about just sort of how business works. And it's just really a fun little read. You know, one of the themes that pops out from your book has to do with the difficulties in forecasting. And I think I want to start this conversation there because in the solar industry, it's really been a problem repeatedly. And that sort really cuts both ways, doesn't it? So I'd like to explore that a bit. Let's start with the errors in forecasting global demand growth. You've got a great chart in Chapter 9, which shows how everyone, including your team at BNEF, consistently underestimated global demand for solar from 2006 on up through 2018. And you say that your forecasting got a little better after 2013, when you started introducing what you called a rest-of-the-world buffer. But even so, your painstaking bottom-up forecast consistently fell short of actual demand. And you note that the most accurate forecast over this period was actually done by Green piece, which just used a compound annual growth rate of over 40% to create its forecast. But even Greenpeace's forecast was less than half of the actual deployments through 2015. And we don't even need to mention the forecasts of the major agencies like IEA and EIA, whose solar forecasts have been laughably wrong forever. So we have to have something to go on. So you carry on with your forecasting work, which has become more sophisticated over time. Still, you end that section of your book by saying models are for avoiding blunders and understanding the world, not for predicting it. So (laughs) why has it proved so difficult to forecast the growth of solar? 
So I think the more I learn about forecasting in general, the more I realise that a lot of forecasts are quite wrong. Economic growth forecasts are quite wrong. Even forecasts of quite important things like electricity demand in the short term can be quite wrong. And particularly anything that goes on multiple years and has multiple factors involved. But with solar, the problem and the joy is policy because governments like to put policies in to support solar to make more people build solar but they don't generally give you much notice on it. And even when they do, you can't always see how effective it's going to be until you also see how that interplays with other factors, like can people get planning permission? Have people already got planning permission? Are there rules that restrict build of solar? What essentially happens is that the solar market is a series of booms and busts of new build in different countries as policy comes in. And it's almost impossible to predict a boom until six months to a year before it happens. And it can be a lot bigger than you think. So what we do these days is we have a buffer. We call it rest of the world, but really it's just space for the countries that we know will boom. So this year it was Vietnam. Vietnam built a lot more solar than we expected. And that was just not predictable two years ago. And so we had that buffer. And so our forecast didn't look quite so stupid. It also means that inevitably, if you only include in your forecast the demand you can see, your forecast is always wrong because it excludes the demand you can't see. Hmm. So there's an X factor there in policy that's just really sort of unavoidable. It really is. Yeah, I mean, there's just no way to know, particularly with the political winds shifting the way they do these days. You know, it wasn't just agencies and analysts like you who struggled to get the forecast right, though. I mean, solar manufacturers did too, only they paid dearly for their errors. From roughly 2004 to 2008, manufacturers of solar cells were expanding rapidly to meet this global boom in demand, which at the time was mainly driven by feed-in tariffs in Germany and Spain. They saw demand continuing to rise well into the future. But Spain's feed-in tariff had some design flaws that caused a lot more projects to apply for it than the government had anticipated. And 3,400 megawatts were installed by 2008, which was eight and a half times as much as Spain's 2010 target. So when the window to apply for the tariff closed in September 2008, the project pipeline just dried up and demand in Spain crashed. And that flowed through to the entire global supply chain, which caused the price of solar cells to crash from $4.20 a watt to just $2 a watt. And that ultimately led to an oversupply of modules, which caused a lot of manufacturers to go bankrupt from 2009 to 2013. Even as another wave of demand growth was underway, which was at that time driven by feed-in tariffs now in the Czech Republic, the UK, and still Germany, followed by surging demand in Italy and China. But as you detail in the book, it wasn't just a problem of poor demand forecasting. Most of the companies that went bankrupt did so because they either incorrectly forecast changes in solar technology or because they just got in over their heads financially. So... Please feel free to correct my little summary of this very complex couple of years here, but I'd like you to summarize a few of those interesting manufacturing stories for us. I will. First of all, I would just say that solar manufacturing is a horrible business. (laughs) It's a commodity product. The margins are very thin. There are new entrants coming in all the time because investors just love solar companies. And it's generally 
the new entrants that have the cost advantage. The newer factories use the newest machinery, they have the largest scale, they're in the places where electricity and labour and the raw materials and components that go into solar modules are cheapest at the moment. And that means that probably about half of the companies I've ever written about have gone bankrupt. So I think that when I summarise solar companies that have gone bankrupt, it's not even like I'm particularly blaming those companies. They're just examples of what tends to happen. So one example was SunTech, which was a manufacturer. It went into project development. So between 2008 and 2012, it went into project development because it was chasing the margins. Modules got a lot cheaper in that time and subsidies fell a lot less, which meant that the margins opened up for the downstream players. One problem, though, was that SunTech's project development arm worked with a company called GSF in Italy. And as Dr. Xi told me when I interviewed him for this book, Dr. Xi was SunTech's CEO at the time, we were misled by a bad person. And they used a few hundreds of millions worth of German bonds as collateral for a project development deal, which it turned out didn't exist. Now, this wasn't actually as bad as it sounds because the projects were okay. However, it's pretty embarrassing when you claim to have hundreds of millions of euros of bonds that do not exist. And things went downhill from there. Dr. Xi was forced out of SunTech and had to learn to cook. And the company ultimately lost confidence and went through bankruptcy. Since then, it's actually was bought and has gone through bankruptcy again, which is not an uncommon situation, even for quite a good solar company with good cell technology and relatively new factories and pretty good implementation. I don't think anyone would say that SunTech was a bad company. It was, however, a victim of some management missteps and also just the vicious competitiveness of the market. It was one of the biggest solar manufacturers in the world at the time, too. And as I recall, it was also one of the main companies behind a trade complaint through the WTO, wasn't it? An anti-competitive complaint. It probably was just because it was the largest solar module manufacturer in the world for a couple of years. And Dr. Xi was one of China's richest men, the Sun King. Mm. He's a really nice guy as well. Mm. But again, I mean... So here you have a company that went through bankruptcy twice and all throughout the product was fine. The margins were probably okay. The projects were good. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I have SunTech modules on my roof. <laughs> right. And it was the financial structure that really took them down. I don't think that's really a well-appreciated aspect of this sector. I'd be interested in getting your quick review of some of the other major companies here as well, like Solyndra, which was famous in this country for its loan guarantee through the ARPA program. You know, the right wing here certainly made a whipping boy out of it, even though they've now backed projects in the fossil fuel space that were multiples the amount of commitment from the federal government that went belly up and they never had any trouble with that. But (laughs) just for the benefit of our listeners, I think it'd be interesting to hear your recap of what happened with Solyndra. So Solyndra was a risk. And my understanding of what the ARPA program is, is that it's about encouraging companies to take risks that they couldn't take otherwise. Otherwise, why not just let the private sector do it if they're a sure thing? Right. So normal solar panels are flat. But cylinders were like a rack of tubes using copper, indium, gallium, selenide, photovoltaics. And you basically put this rack on a roof 
and you could use it on a much less solid roof than you need for normal flat modules. And in some light conditions, you might even get more energy out of it. So it was quite popular in Germany, where the feed-in tariffs were pretty good, and there were large commercial roofs that weren't strong enough to support glass-based modules. And there were some sales, things looked good. They were more expensive than glass-based modules. I think what really wasn't obvious to investors in Solyndra was that the situation in Germany with very good feed-in tariffs incentivizing people to build solar on every roof wasn't going to last. Germany cut its feed-in tariffs because, hey, why pay people more than you need to get them to install ordinary solar panels? And Solyndra couldn't sell anymore. And it hadn't brought its costs down enough, so it went bankrupt. So basically, it just got to a point where it couldn't actually compete with the ongoing progress in regular glass-based photovoltaic modules. Exactly. And there wasn't a niche for it Hmm. for higher priced products. In general, I'm not a huge fan of the idea that there's a niche for different types of solar modules. Solar modules are extremely standardized. And that standardization is part of the reason why the cost has come down as much as it has. Well, let's talk then about Evergreen. And I should note that I was actually in the solar business in California toward the end of this period here. And I actually installed and sold Evergreen modules. They were really interesting from a technology perspective too. They were. And they were a perfectly good product as well. The main thing that Evergreen was doing was reducing how much silicon was used. At the time, silicon could cost you over $400 a kilogram on the spot market. And so it was really quite a big part of your cost breakdown. And the conventional way of making silicon modules is to take that polysilicon, cast it into ingots, and then literally slice it up with a wire saw. And in those days, wire saws weren't quite as good as they are now. They used silicon carbide slurry rather than diamond wires. And that's quite a wasteful process. You lose over 50% of your silicon So what Evergreen did instead was grow the wafers directly out of the molten silicon. And that meant that you used a lot less raw material. The problem was that the wafers weren't quite as good. They didn't make quite such efficient modules. And the whole process wasn't cheap. And so essentially what happened was the silicon price crashed. Evergreen had the problem of the process no longer being competitive. And it was also locked into long-term silicon contracts to buy silicon. Hmm. And those silicon contracts had seemed like a really good idea when you couldn't get silicon for love or money. But when the spot price dropped to $70, $60, $50 a kilogram, it didn't look so good. And today the spot price of silicon is about $10 a kilogram. So they're not coming back. Hmm. So that was really a case of technology risk, wasn't it? Like they had a process that was much more efficient in its use of what was at the time a very expensive feedstock. And then when the price of that feedstock crashed, their expensive process no longer made sense. Precisely. Okay, well, let's talk about another one. What about Hanergy? Now, I need to talk carefully about Hanergy because I don't want to get sued. (laughs) The problem with Hanergy is that it hasn't really made anything yet. That would be a problem. It is a bit of a problem. Mm -hmm. And at one point, it was worth $34 billion on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. Wow. There were some funny things going on there. Yeah. What it claimed to be doing was making manufacturing equipment for thin film solar modules and then selling them to another entity, which was also called Hanergy, somewhere in China. And it reported significant revenues from this. But I've never seen a Hanergy module. 
I don't think that equipment made modules. Now they claim to be into making solar powered cars, which I also am slightly skeptical about. But there were some strange things going on in the Hong Kong Stock Exchange at that period. It was a bit Wild West. Mm. And there were some strange patterns in who and when people were buying and selling the shares that made the valuation appear to be $34 billion. And I think that for fear of being sued, and because financial regulation doesn't really encourage people to say the emperor has no clothes, nobody really said anything apart from a chap called Charles Yontz, who did write some quite scathing equity analyst reports about Hanergy. So stock market shenanigans sounds like the quick summary there. On <laughs> Definitely stock market shenanigans. <laughs> they did acquire some companies that were legitimate, yeah, but they were also fairly high risk companies, and it's difficult to build a good company on the back of stock market shenanigans. Yes, indeed. That's not a great foundation. All right. Well, let's talk about another one. How about Sun Edison? That's really one of the more high profile companies in this country and really innovated the whole third party solar finance lease, didn't it? It really did under Jigar Shah. But Jigar left and Sun Edison at that point was essentially a project developer. The problem for project developers is that they've often got to put a lot of capital into projects to get them built. And they want to sell those projects as quickly as possible, which means that they have a lot of outgoing cash flows and then they get incoming cash flows at the end. And a lot of project developers are not very well capitalized. And this can lead them to taking some quite severe risks. So Sun Edison set up a couple of yield codes called Terraform Power and Terraform Global. And the idea of a yield co is if you or I want to invest in a solar project, it's probably quite hard for us, right? We have to find someone who wants to sell a solar project and then we have to figure out a structure to get in and then we have to leave our money there for 20 years or however long it takes to get a return. And if at any point we want to get that money out to, you know, buy a house or send our kid to college, then we can't do that easily. So the idea of yield codes like Terraform Power and Terraform Global is that they're listed on a stock exchange and all they do really is hold and manage solar projects. So if you and I wanted to put our money into it, we could just buy some stocks in the Terraform yield codes and the sun would shine, they would generate power, we would get some kind of dividend and we could sell it anytime we wanted. So Sun Edison managed these two yield codes, or at least there were directors on the board of both the yield codes and Sun Edison. So there's a bit of conflict of interest potentially when you have a developer who's selling to projects and the owner of the projects after that is not the developer, so it's investors like you and me. I'm not really an investor, but for the purpose of this hypothesis, let's assume we are. So the developer and the yield co are managed by the same people because one is selling to the other. And Sun Edison essentially, it appears, sold projects to Terraform before they were entirely finished and at a price which was possibly a little high. And the reason they did that was probably to get some cash on balance sheet. And eventually things came apart. They took a few too many risks and didn't deliver. And they were sued by shareholders. And the whole thing came crashing down. As I recall, one of the real problems with the Yield Co. structure was essentially that it needed an ever-increasing pipeline of projects coming in in order to sustain the whole model. 
There's definitely a problem with the US yield curves. In the UK, yield curves are actually a bit more rational in that they really are just projects sit in the sun. The company manages them. In the US, yes, because of the tax structures, you do have to keep them growing. And so on one hand, you had the Yield Co, which was desperate to buy projects. And at the same time, you had Sunnison, which was desperate to sell projects and also controlled the Yield Co. The incentives were not well aligned Mm -hmm. from the perspective of investors in the Yield Co. Yeah. Well, for one more example, I think it'd be fun to talk about Yingli. And this one just kind of made me laugh because it made me flash back to a previous career when I was writing investment newsletters for stock market tips company, essentially. And I remember at one point, the CEO asked a bunch of us analysts, all right, give me your best solar company in the world and tell me which one you like and why you like it. And I picked Yingli because I thought they really had good financials and a very solid pipeline and, you know, a modern manufacturing process and so on. So what happened with them? I don't think there was anything wrong with Yingli. It was, however, a solar company going through this period. So its problems are actually pretty similar to some of the others we've already talked about. It had long-term silicon contracts like Evergreen, which were above market prices coming into 2011 and 2012 and, and stayed with it for some years. It had great factories, but those factories got old and they got old before Yingli had paid the debt down on them. Mm. And eventually, I think it simply ran out of money to pay its debt. Mm. Wow. Who would want to be a solar manufacturer? I mean, (laughs) you've got all this technology risk with different kinds of methods and systems cropping up around you. You've got immense capital requirements. You have ever-changing subsidies on the customer side through various federal policies. And then you've got all these financial systems and structures, or in some cases, shenanigans that you depend on. This is very complicated business. It's horrendous. And I think you can go bankrupt without doing anything wrong. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, in solar, we've had trouble both with underestimating demand and overestimating it. And as you detail in the book, these forecasting problems are really up and down the value chain, aren't they? I mean, providers of refined polysilicon, which is also used by the computer industry for making semiconductors, were late in reacting both to increasing and decreasing demand. So there was this lag. And prices for it seesawed wildly between $25 a kilogram and over $400 a kilogram between 2004 and 2008. And that's, you know, as we just discussed, the solar module manufacturers made a number of bad moves as they tried to adjust to this fluctuation of their most important and fundamental feedstock. And we've even seen certain grid operators struggling with it too. I mean, for example, even though demand for electricity has been flat to declining in most parts of the U.S. and most sectors for over a decade straight now, as well as much of the rest of the OECD, the whole time, most utilities in the U.S. anyway were forecasting that demand would turn up any day now, which has led to significant overcapacity on some systems like the PJM RTO most notably, and insufficient capacity on others, as we've now seen over the last couple of weeks with the California ISO struggling to keep the power on during a record heat wave. So to be clear, this isn't just due to the difficulty of forecasting. It also has to do with various issues with market rules, as we've been discussing in several previous shows of this show, like episode 73 on regulatory capture and episode 128, which is part of our energy basics series. But ultimately, 
poor forecasting for power demand can lead the solar industry as a whole to over or underestimate demand for its products too. Do you think we'll ever get any better at this? We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all of the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. There are several ways to become a subscriber. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year or $5 a month. Monthly subscriptions are just $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer half-priced annual subscriptions for universities. Students can purchase individual subscriptions, or professors can purchase bulk subscriptions for their classes. Numerous educators now use the Energy Transition Show as coursework, and their testimonials are available on request. And finally, we offer site licenses with group discounts on annual subscriptions for all members of institutions, such as corporations, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. According to the Vietnam Energy Update Report 2020, recently released under the Vietnam Union of Science and Technology Associations, or VUSTA, solar and wind have become priorities in developing the country's energy resources over the past year, while six provinces have proposed to cancel coal-fired power projects over concerns about their pollution. Recently, gas plants have been proposed to replace coal plants, but the political winds are clearly shifting in favor of more renewable energy development. Encouraged by the Politburo's resolution number 55NQTW in February, numerous wind and solar power projects have been added to the National Power Plan. As of June 2020, renewables provided about 10% of Vietnam's electricity system capacity, as rooftop solar systems in particular grew by nearly 50% this summer alone. Nearly 3 gigawatts of renewable energy have been integrated into the grid in the central region, including over 1 gigawatt of solar. And while renewable energy has been growing faster than planned, coal power projects are lagging behind schedule. This rather sudden change of direction has forced the Ministry of Industry and Trade to develop its Power Development Master Plan 8 because the seventh plan had been rendered irrelevant. According to a draft of Power Master Plan 8, renewable power capacity is expected to increase from 21% to about 30% and coal power to decrease from around 43% to 27% by 2030. But of course, this change isn't really all that sudden. We previewed it in episodes 91 and 93 with Tim Buckley nearly two years ago. 
Item 2. After lobbying the UK government through August to resurrect plans for a nuclear power plant in North Wales that I will not even attempt to pronounce, which had been on hold since the beginning of 2019, Hitachi threw in the towel in September. Apparently, the UK government's guarantee to pay for one-third of the plant's £20 billion. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.